Hey guys, I'm Nick. And I'm Yuji. Welcome to Papercut. This week we'll be discussing The Republic by Plato. Alright, Eugene, take it away. Oh boy. So, you know, The Republic, man. Every single political science student talks about it like it's their Bible. It's like the Moby Dick of politics, you know. English students, they say, I've read Moby Dick. And this is the book for politics students. Oh, here we go. Uh, to be honest, it is a very interesting book. So not like Moby Dick then. <laughs> well, that's that thing, right? Remember in Moby Dick, I said like um, it prepared me for reading other books that they might go deeper into thoughts, but at least their words are understandable. So yeah. at least the wording here was understandable. Okay. So, but it's actually is interesting. It's written in like a dialogue style, so okay. Socratic dialogue, right? Okay. Uh, it's Plato chatting with his students, basically. Amazing. Probably high on weed or whatever they grow on back in the days, but basically in this book, Plato goes into the idea of what a in his world what an ideal society would be. Okay. I think in the interest of time, we can focus on the key points of it. So how he goes about defining a just society. I think it's best off to split into three parts. So first off, what is justice, and then what does that mean in terms of an individual. Mm-hmm. And then expand that idea to a society. Okay. So before I start any of that, Nick, I just want to get your thoughts on what you think justice is. Okay. Uh, so I, I just quick a disclaimer for everyone. I've actually never read The Republic, and for me, I when I hear the word republic, I normally assume you know the like America, like the whole republican state and everything that we know of nowadays. Uh, as to what justice means. Well, for me, justice means fairness. So the idea that if you do something wrong in the eyes of the law, you get punished for it. Or if you do something that's morally wrong, you get your punishment for it uh, at some point or another. And similarly, if you do something right, you know, you should get rewarded for it. So not necessarily eye for an eye, but there should be some sense of reward and punishment for certain actions. That's how I would view justice. And that's what I would view as a just person i guess or just state yeah um that is the definition that most people would give Mm -hmm. and that's actually the definition that you know plato asked this question to his students and some of them gave like quite similar answers as well yeah plato actually didn't like those answers okay he said (laughs) i've already failed his first lesson (laughs) well i mean his students also failed it so you know you're no worse than the students I mean, those students are, well, okay, <laughs> go on. Yeah, we can't name any of them for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go on. Yeah, so Plato didn't like any of those explanations, because not because they were wrong, but because they did not address the root cause of justice. So Plato thinks that all the just actions or just um, situations that you see in life, they're consequences of just men carrying out their actions. And... By definition, actions carried out by just men will be just. Okay. So he thinks it makes more sense to ask, what is a just man? Mm. Because, like, justice in the conventional sense, like what you mean just now, it follows off through what a just man does. I see. So he's defining more from the source of it rather than the specific actions. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So Plato goes into the idea of just man through dissecting the human mind not literally but like just theoretically Mm -hmm. he thinks that the human mind 
consist of three parts, right? Mm-hmm. So first of all, there's the reason bit, which is you know all the logical thinking, the hub of wisdom. You know, like um, we all know not to put our hand in in a pot of boiling water and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that's the reason bit. There's the appetite, which mm-hmm. is basically all our urges. So like, do I go to Donkey later to buy that <laughs> rice cake? Yeah, do you have a massive donut later? Exactly. That? Yeah, that all that kind of stuff. So mm. that's the appetite, and there's a spirit bit. Okay. Which is um, my interpretation is the bit of myself which goes no, shouldn't do that. Okay. Okay. So, uh, How is that different from sort of the rational bit? So the rational bit is knowing that you shouldn't do it. Okay. But the spirit bit is the one that acts it out. I see. So, so it, it carries out. It ca- mm. yeah, enforces and enforces the reason. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's all well and clear. So Plato says that for a man to be just, mm-hmm. all three of those virtues need to agree that reason leads the way. So mm-hmm. they need to listen to what reason dishes out as direction and right. follow them. Or I guess in this case, like spirit needs to let reason tell them what to do. Like spirit won't take charge suddenly, you know, mm. that doesn't work. That's one thing. And the second thing is they all need to not meddle with each other. So appetite keeps the appetite bit. Yeah. Spirit keeps to enforcing their own mm-hmm. And reason will just keep dishing out ideas. Okay. So that's the main point. And he says that only when those three things live together in harmony and don't meddle with each other and let reason lead the way, does a man become just. Okay. So you've described, I guess, a just man. Yeah. So how does that link to sort of... Because it's the Republic, right? The Republic, in my mind, maybe it's different, but in my mind, it's a society. It's not just one person. Yeah, exactly. That's a very good question. So Plato says that, okay, we've defined a just man. Mm. And now a society, a country, Mm. a state, can be viewed as like a man. Like the governing body is basically the mind of a society, right? Yeah. So you can use the same definition, or you can, I guess you can expand, extrapolate the idea of the three different parts of the mind to the society as a whole. Okay, so so how can you explain how that would work? Yep, so um, obviously you have the reason bit, right? Mm-hmm. Provides all the logical thinking direction, so that would be the ruler. Yep. You have the spirit, which is the enforcement bit. Yep, okay. And there will be the... Um, so like your policemen, judges, yeah. and okay. Well, not judges actually. Oh, okay. I think I think it's just policemen because policemen. they're meant to be enforcing. Okay. Yeah. So mm. I'm not sure where judges lie in that. I think judges will be part of the ruler as well. As civil workers, would you consider them part of the spirit? So in this analogy. Mm, yeah. So I think anything that enforces the government's will will so carries the yeah. okay. Then they will be part of the auxiliaries. Although I. Like they're not really defined that well here. So Plato mainly means the enforcement. Okay. And lastly, you have the appetite, which is the everyday citizen, you and me. You know. Yeah, the everyday man. The everyday <laughs> man, exactly. We are only urges of this society. We aren't anything else. That's such. It's a really somewhat reductionist way to look at it. <laughs> I mean, but I guess in, for the time, for what it is, and for the substance, I guess it makes sense to some degree. I think the idea is like we provide sort of primal urges for the society, right, I guess. So mm. we don't necessarily give the logical direction, but we give a sort of like which way we want to go. So we society full of like, if everyone here is a gold miner, mm. 
then there would be like a well not really a direction but like a, a way and then like the rulers need to think about how to like what direction to go given this um i guess constraint okay because remember right like if you don't have urges you don't progress you know yeah yeah so it is a vital part of a society or slash human because if you don't have greed or desires if you just have reason and spirit mm. you just sit here and you just think you won't do anything yeah. i think a nicer way to put it instead of like greed or vice because it, it does have carried negative yeah, 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 yeah. it's more value and what you've described is basically a uh, value of hierarchies as well hierarchy of values so like you decide as a person like what actually matters to you does your family matter to you more or does your job matter more or maybe your food for tomorrow matters more and that sort of happens for society as well should they prioritize like healthcare? should they prioritize like education yeah for exactly, example yeah, yeah. so i guess that makes sense like in in that in that sense of the word so I yeah. think that's what he's aiming for like even even like it sounds like they are less valuable they are still essential for society to function okay so that's the point i was getting at okay yes so where is that yeah so there are those three different um, sections of society. Yeah. And Plato says for, for, society, for society to be just, mm-hmm. those three different sections also, in the same way that in the mind, they don't meddle with each other. Mm-hmm. In society, they do not meddle with each other. They let the philosopher king dish out all the decisions. Right. And the auxiliaries have to obey what the mm. philosopher king says, what the ruler says. Okay, so the auxiliaries actually just work. They work for the kings. They, they, never, they are, don't work for like the people. In, in that sense, that's interesting because Plato actually says like the philosopher king, if he is like truly benevolent, he will be dishing out his decisions based on the people. Yeah. So he'll be doing it for the people. Mm. So when the auxiliaries carry out those decisions, they will be um, working for the people in the sense that they are working for the ideas that ultimately benefit the people yeah so i think this is plato's way of working around sort of like oh they aren't actually obeying the people as well like he's saying the governing body itself already does put the people at like the greatest priority i guess okay okay not the greatest priority i'd say that is i uh, wording here is tricky but like they they work according to the people's benefit let's put it that way so I guess it's like the whole idea of this greater good sort of thing. Yeah. They have that, they know the way, they they know how to get people there. It's just, they need to get everyone in line sort of just to hit that yeah. goal. Yeah, yeah. And the enforcers help. Okay, okay. All right. I can see, I guess it's important to like bear in mind, especially with these sort of, philosophical text that he's working with ideals. Yeah, he, exactly. He, like back then, there probably wasn't like too many experiments done on this and so he's working with ideals he's working with the very in philosophical space he's not working with like well reality pragmatic but i mean as a starting point it's not bad right yeah it's like the whole idea i I mean the whole idea is like platonic ideals platonic man like i guess it's a starting point it's interesting though because like back then uh, when this was written ancient greek was divided in a lot of city states right yeah and Every one of them had different, um, they had different political structures, actually. Mm-hmm. So you have, um, you have stuff like Athens, which is like a full-fledged democracy. Or as a democracy, I guess. As democratic as could get back yeah. then. Yeah. And then you have Sparta, which is basically like... Autocracy. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the movie. 
So you know what I'm talking about, you know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Everyone there are six packs, man. So. <laughs> exactly. And it's only 300 of them. Yeah, so I guess, like, Plato sort of, like, looked at all of those. And from what he observed from each of those society, mm-hmm. he devised, like, what he thinks will be the best one. So from what I'm saying, what form of government do you think this resembles most? Uh, you know what? It's actually very interesting that you mentioned that. Because to me, it rep- it to me, I hear it and I go, "This is a monarchy." It's it sounds like a monarchy, except like you know the early stages of a monarchy where the king actually cares, <laughs> as opposed to like the latter stages where it's basically just their kid kind of going, "Oh, feed me, feed me, feed me." But sire, we are we're, we're facing famine. I don't care. Feed me. That's true. Though. That's that's the thing. And that's true. Yeah. It's it's also interesting because the other thing it reminds me of is it's actually like. You know, we always branch into Western and Eastern philosophy when we talk about philosophy, right? But what you've described, maybe, uh, maybe I've just interpreted it completely wrong, but it sounds quite similar to this whole Eastern ideal society as well, where you have this emperor, he has these scholars, and he has, of course, the army just trying to enforce his will on the people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's necessarily a benevolent ruler, but it sounds... Because I think it also stems from a similar starting point in that you start with the family unit. Like, in, in Chinese society, you listen to the head of the family, which tends to be the dad or the grandfather, mm-hmm. whatever. And then that sort of branches out into the state as well, in that you have these people and everyone listens to the king and his officials, and then the army or whatever carries out his will into the individual, like, villages and all that. So, I don't know, maybe I'm drawing a false uh, parallel, but... There seems to be overlap in these sort of structures. No, there definitely is overlap, but um, I think you've mentioned there just now already. Like the most important thing of all of this is the benevolent king, right? Mm. If the king is good, he cares, then everything works out. Like look at the Tang Dynasty, mm-hmm. right? I like, don't know much about at, it. At, at its height, at its height. Okay. You know, you had um, uh, I don't know what the English name for that guy is, but like the guy who was known as like the greatest emperor in the Tang Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, people living under him, you know, they didn't have to basically worry about anything. They would just go to sleep with the doors open. Nothing would happen because everyone was like so content with what they had, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It's good. It's, it's good that you made this distinction because I think I want to add to that. that okay. The, the benevolent king, yeah. uh, philosopher king, um, is actually chosen here by a very specific process. So in Chinese society, or I guess in Eastern philosophy or whatever you want to call that, mm-hmm. um, if you look at all the dynasties, like literally every single dynasty, you would see that maybe the first king is good, and what happens? So after that, it's just he gives like, it to his son, gives- and his son's a complete trash, right? <laughs> as every single that's every single like dynasty in China. Oh my god, every true. single. So this is where it goes wrong. Okay. This is where it goes wrong. Because <laughs> because of this family unit idea, it gets tied in with the ruling class. Yeah, yeah. But then, just because you're of that family name, doesn't mm. mean you're smart. So here, the selection of the ruling class, Plato argues, first of all, strip everyone of their family status. Wow. Yep. So there how, is, how do yeah. you do that? Um, basically, the classes that are involved in the governance, so auxiliaries and rulers, yep. they can only reproduce in given periods. Wow. 
and no, that, <laughs> dude. This is, dude. This is not. This is like mating season. Mate, yeah, 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 dude. There's not even a. There's not even like the most uh, controversial bit. Yet. Okay, okay. So they can only reproduce in those like seasons. Okay. And all their kids will be immediately taken away from their parents. So the kid doesn't know who the parent is, and vice versa. <laughs> okay. That's that's extreme, but yeah. I, I see where he's coming from. And okay. All those kids yeah. will need to treat every single kid within the same season as brothers and sisters. Oh. Because well, they just want to avoid incest. Oh. Okay. And, yeah. Because like if you don't know who is who is like actually your sister or who's actually your brother and you just go and like you basically you basically can't mate with anyone with in the in the same season season as you are. I see. So, so these philosopher kings, uh, this this elite ruling class, basically, would basically mess around with each other during one specific season, give birth, and then these children they never see them again. In theory, is that the, well? They don't never see them again, but they don't know who their parents are. Oh. The idea of this is to strip them of the family status. Okay. So the problem that I said before, right? Yeah, yeah. The whole tying coupling of the family and the ruling bit yeah. goes away. Yeah. And then now. Only then do you do a selection. Mm. So you put all of them through like a specific training program. If I remember correctly, Plato has like mandatory training for both the auxiliary class and ruling class. Okay. okay. And after a while, you know, those who show more appetite towards the ruling, they would have like a specific ruling stream and um, same for like the auxiliary class. So if you want, if you show more. Um, appetite to that direction then you also go into that stream as well okay okay I'm, I'm just curious is there is there much room for I don't know if he discussed it but is there much room for social mobility so if you were like born into like you know the urges class could you go into like in the auxiliary class could you go into the the ruling class or if you were born in like the the um, auxiliary class could you go into the ruling class for example is there much room for that, or maybe it wasn't discussed? Well, the thing is, like, your question assumes that you're born with a class, you're not. Oh, okay. Because you, your parents could be rulers, but you don't know that because okay. they're you're taken away directly from your parents. So you're you're not born with a class, if that makes sense. That's the entire idea of this, of this process is to strip yourself of your parents' status. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, okay. So, so if you were. If you were if you were born from like let's say you know the the appetite, um, appetite doesn't actually get mentioned here. Ah. I don't <laughs> think, again, this is where Plato goes. Not not important enough. Not important <laughs> enough. Yeah. Okay. Fair. I enough. think there are some translation issues here as well because um, apparently I read up on this like Plato was very loose with his use of words, so he was using like guardians for half the stuff, and he was using like some broader word that describes both rulers and auxiliaries mm. and he was using them interchangeably so you can never tell 100% like whether he means just one or both classes I see so I think like in the in the sort of birth control process here <laughs> like he was using a very loosely interpreted word so yeah but I think it makes sense that he is applying it to both the governing body and the law enforcement body because otherwise if you just apply it to one then there's no difference to being born with a status Mm. you need to mix it up with at least another one okay okay so yeah I think he does talk about like social mobility between appetite and 
um, the other two classes as well, but I can't remember exactly what he said. Okay. It's interesting that you mention all this, because this is, I guess this has really changed my idea of what the book would be, because I guess this is on my reading list, it is, Mm -hmm. I do, it's one of those things that's shaped Western thought, isn't it? And when you hear the word republic, you, I, the first thing that pops into my mind is democratic vote. Um, What else do I think of when I hear republic? I think, well, social mobility is one of them. I think working for the people, I think, um, for some reason, two-party state or multi-party mm-hmm. state. I think, and sort of rotation and all these, but I, I, this is not the case. This is definitely nowhere near the case. Yeah, like, it's interesting because I hear a lot of, like, I guess, people who, when they advocate for democracy, they use Republic. Like, they use this book, and I'm just thinking, like, I support your cause, but I'm not sure I agree with your usage of the book here. <laughs> I think Plato, when he says republic, right, he doesn't mean it in the sense we do nowadays. Yeah. So he thinks republic should be everyone knows what they do and they just do it. Uh, His idea of harmony is not matter with everything else. His idea of republic sounds more like, you know, the North Korean version of the democratic republic. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. The truly democratic. Exactly. You need to put it in your country name to make it true. (laughs) Actually, okay, I'm curious, because you also mentioned, like, we mentioned a lot about this benevolent ruler idea, like, does, does he mention, does he talk about this? Yeah, so, here, I think this is the problem with the benevolent ruler here, Yeah, is that they basically need to reach a sense of, quote-unquote, enlightenment. Okay. So, have you heard of the cave analogy? Uh, allegory of the cave, yeah. Uh, allegory, yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, I'll just quickly go through it, right, so... You're born in the cave, you can only see shadows of objects, but you don't know what they are. Then, you know, when you go out of the cave, you actually see those objects and they're different to the shadows. So, Plato um, uses this analogy to say that to reach enlightenment, you need to go out of the cave to see what things are, not just the shadows of them. And to reach that stage, you know, you need to go through a lifelong series of training and all that stuff. Yeah. And to be honest, like, the reason why I think it probably won't work is because it's just such an abstract definition of what enlightenment is Mm. like remember all of this only works if you find a way to have people reach the philosopher bit that's the hard bit like how do you know when someone reaches enlightenment how do you even go about trying to get them to reach enlightenment you know does he does he offer like um ways to reach enlightenment he does like he he talks about the syllabus and is very ad hoc it's very like yeah, so there will be those who show more appetite to this. I think he goes as far as that. He doesn't explicitly say what methods to use. Right. He does have a few other allegories in the book mm-hmm. that goes more into what he thinks the difference between what we see and what actually is is. Mm-hmm. But from what I can read, they are basically saying what we're seeing is not what is. And to reach enlightenment, you need to know what is, but he doesn't actually say what it is. That's just... Well, I guess, you know, it's always one of those things where you take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's an ideal, it's a starting point. It's not meant to be reality, I suppose. Oh, it should be reality, but we can't reach it yeah. like, fully. So, oh. yeah, so that's the thing, right? And another interesting about the Philosopher King class yeah, is yeah. that Plato actually thinks that they won't want to rule the world. Uh. <laughs> because he thinks that to deal with earthly matters 
Yeah. Is to basically go back into the cave and looking at shadows again. Because, like, if you can see stuff as they are, why would you want to discern your mind back down? Yeah. Right? So he's saying that instead of just one philosopher king, there needs to be a group of philosopher kings. And they are in a constant state of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You know, they go up there, they basically go high, they get high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, they do their while they're high and they want to come back down. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there needs to be a group of them constantly in enlightenment. And they take turns descending their mind back to to the earth, you know, to the state and rule it. It's interesting that you mentioned that because there is a tradition in some places of people, like when they're given a position of power, they have to pretend that they don't want it first. <laughs> and then they have then they go, okay, fine, I'll take it. Oh, I'll take it. I mean, you saw the other day with um, the speak of the house, uh, speak of the commons in Britain, apparently like, it's tradition for all the MPs to drag the new speaker to the chair and for him to assume the role. <laughs> so this stuff still continues to this very day. Yeah. But I didn't know that. Like, I was wondering, how does this succession planning work? And it's interesting that you have to almost rotate and it's almost seen as a burden to rotate to the role of ruling everyone. Oh, so terrible. Yeah, I guess to the philosophers, right? For the rulers. Yeah. It will just be like, why would I care about this? This is nothing to me. It's just like a bunch of people squabbling. Why well, do I want to care about this? Like when I can just get high, you know? Exactly. And to further my point on this, um, Plato also bans uh, any kind of property or wealth for the ruling class and the auxiliaries for obvious reasons. Okay, actually, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Fair enough. I'm just a bit. I'm just conscious of time. Um, any closing remarks? Like, would you recommend this book? I would definitely recommend this book. I think for, for anyone who's like mildly interested in politics. Okay. I guess it gives you a um, perspective, right? Into what Plato's mind of society is. Like Plato was, I'm just going to say it, he's anti-democratic. Yeah, there you go. I guess you're right. This doesn't sound like our common everyday, sorry, our current notion of republic. Yeah. So it's, it gives you a perspective, like whether you agree with him or not, that's another thing, but it's definitely worth reading just mm-hmm. to like arm yourself with more knowledge. Okay. It's a is a is a very good read. It's very it's very well structured. Okay. And I won't say the arguments there are solid, but they 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 are interesting. Okay. Would you say because it was written so long ago? Would you say it's hard to understand? Um, the version that I read wasn't hard to understand. Like it's definitely easier to understand than Moby Dick. So. Okay. That's all I needed. <laughs> all right, then. I'm glad that you mentioned this because this is this is on the reading list. It's just where I can find the time to do it. But okay. Is there any, anything else? Um, nope. Just have fun reading. All right, guys. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening in. If you like what we do, follow us on Spotify. Just type in Paper Cut Podcast in your search bar or in any of your other preferred streaming sites. If you want to leave us a comment or let us know what you think, you can email us at papercut.cast at gmail.com or Instagram at papercut.cast, no caps, or Twitter at papercutpodcast, one word, no caps. Look forward to seeing you guys next week for another episode. Until then, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Peace out. Alright guys, 
that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening in. If you like what we do, follow us on Spotify. Just type in Paper Cut Podcast in your search bar or in any of your other preferred streaming sites. If you want to leave us a comment or let us know what you think, you can email us at papercut.cast at gmail.com or Instagram at papercut.cast, no caps. Or Twitter at papercutpodcast, one word, no caps. Look forward to seeing you guys next week for another episode. Until then, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Peace out.